God, we are in awe of you. Through you, the word becomes flesh. You created the vastness of the cosmos and you call the seasons into being, transforming Knoxville into a beautiful winter wonderland yesterday morning. But we are insignificant compared to you, God, and yet you call us sons and daughters, heirs in the kingdom. We are in all of you. Lord, we're here tonight because we want to spend time with you. We want to be in your presence. We want to be with other believers. We ask you to fill us and move in this place, Lord. Through the Holy Spirit, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand. Lord, we know that you are motivated and you respond to the cries of your people. Lord, please hear our prayers. For our world and our nation, um, we confess, Lord, that um, just a sense of numbness with each um, attack and each terrorist attack that we see, each hate crime that we hear about, Lord, Satan has been defeated, but he still rules the world, and we are overwhelmed by his acts of evil. Lord, help us to do what you've commanded us to do, and that is to put on the, your full armor and to stand firm in the faith. Lord, for Gatlinburg in the city of Knoxville, we grieve with those families, 18 individuals, people made in your image that perished in that fire in November. And for all the work that needs to be done in rebuilding businesses and homes, Lord, we ask that you would provide for daily needs, but also permanent housing and restore hopes and dreams there. And Lord, we pray especially um, for service workers in Catlin for um, just low-income housing. There are people who are waitstaff and grounds people and housekeepers are really seem to be suffering. Lord, this week our church sends out our first fruits um, with attend to the city gifts. We just pray that um, they will be multiplied tenfold or more um, and they would go out in love and be received in love as um, they're being sent from our church. We pray that we would be a body, Lord, that encourages one another and carries each other's burdens. Um, we are so grateful for um, Suzanne and Bill and um, how they model um, spiritual faithfulness in um, the midst of um, ravaging disease that they face. And Lord, we just ask that, we just ask boldly that if it were your will that you would bring their bodies to um, complete fullness and healing. Um, give you the glory, Lord. Um, we ask this in Jesus' name. Um, we are grateful this week that Bill did not need surgery for a port in his chest. We thank you, and we just pray for Suzanne for 
uh, reduce fatigue and pain. Um, God, we also pray for many in our body who are honoring parents who are aged. Um, we have parents who have cancer, parents who have mental illness, parents who have different um, degrees of um, memory loss, Lord. This is confusing and causing them to be angry. We have parents who are in town and or out of town, parents who are lonely, um, parents who won't take their medicine or see their doctors, Lord. We just, so many in our body are affected in this way. We just um, thank them for their love and commitment to their parents and pray for patient endurance for them. Lord, we praise you that um, Judy Pate returned to work this past week, and she just um, gives you the glory, Lord. She's so grateful for the prayers, and that's what she attributes her um, return to work so quickly for. Um, your word is truth and light, Lord. Um, we want to lift up all of our teachers of the word here, our Sunday school teachers, Lizzie, Noel, um, Mark, David, Taryn, and Doug. Thank you, Lord, for these shepherds. Lord God, we pray these things and unspoken prayers. Um, in the name of Jesus, the gatekeeper, amen. Our scripture reading tonight is found in the sixth chapter of Micah, verse 8. It's a short portion, and so I'll be reading it twice. Micah 6, 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly before your God. He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly before your God. This is the word of the Lord. We spent most of the summer and fall studying the lives of David and Solomon, two of Israel's most powerful kings. And we tried to understand their reigns in light of God's purpose for Israel. And we, we illustrated that purpose with a story from the former Soviet Union. When Stalin wanted to explain to the world the vision of communism, he created a city in Poland called Nova Hutta, which meant new city. And he filled the new city with the best communist schools, the best communist hospitals, the best communist communists, uh, sports centers. And if you wondered what communism was all about, he would say, well, go visit the new city and you'll see it. And in a similar way, God created Israel to be an advertisement of who God is, of, of how he treats people, of his vision for, uh, for life in this world. Uh, Old Testament scholar Christopher Wright explains this. Uh, God's answer to the interna international blight of sin was a new community of international blessing, a nation that would be the pattern and model of redemption 
as well as the vehicle by which the blessing of redemption would eventually embrace the rest of humanity. God's purpose was to create a new community of people who in their social life would embody those qualities of righteousness, peace, justice, and love that reflect God's own character and were God's original purpose for humanity. Well, one of the ways, one of the primary ways that Israel was to display God's glory and character to the world was by practicing justice, as we just read in the passage from Micah. Uh, well, what does it mean to do justice? Uh, the Hebrew word mishpat is used 200 times in the Old Testament. basically means to treat people fairly. A pastor and author Tim Keller defines mishpat like this. Mishpat describes taking up the care and cause of widows, orphans, immigrants, and the poor. In pre-modern agrarian societies, these four groups had no social power. They lived at subsistence level and were only days from starvation if there was a famine invasion, or even minor social unrest. Today, this quartet would be expanded to include the refugee, the migrant worker, the homeless, and many single parents and elderly people. God loves and defends those with the least economic and social power, and so should we. This is what it means to do justice. So Solomon fails to do justice. The young king begins to imitate all the other kings around him who oppress their own people. He even forces his own people into slavery to build uh, the temple uh, and his palace. And for a while, Israel flourishes, but the seeds of its own destruction were being sown, and Israel starts to collapse. Well, God uh, loves Israel and won't let that happen for long. And so one of the things that we asked last fall was, how are we like Solomon? Solomon thought he was doing the right thing. He thought he was following God. People thought he was a very wise and godly man, and he wrote some killer proverbs. Um, He really recognized as a great godly man. At the same time, he was, I would say, being blinded by demonic powers and got involved with systemically oppressing his own people. And so we've wondered, how are we like that? How, how are we participating in injustice, maybe not even knowing it? What are the ways that we have been blinded by demonic powers to God's will? What are some of the shalom gaps in our community that break God's heart, but that we become so comfortable with that we just accept it as normal, that we accept it as normal, let's say, that uh, mentally ill people wander the streets in sub-degree weather begging for food and refusing to go to the shelter, and we just think it's normal, and that historians 100 years from now might write back and the students would scratch their heads and, and say, really? That happened in Knoxville, Tennessee? What were they thinking? Paul Italic recommended Isabel Wilkerson's powerful book, The Warmth of Other Sons, to me. It's about the great migration of three million black people out of the Jim Crow South. It's, uh, it's brilliant. It's very painful. I've had to stop reading it two or three times. And the first part of the book describes in painful detail how church-growing Southerners cruelly treated black people, sometimes worshiping together on a Sunday morning and then Uh, gladly participating in a lynching on a Sunday night. And it's easy when you read about the Jim Crow South 
to be very self-righteous about the hypocrisy of southern churchgoers and just shake our heads. But they all thought it was just normal. They all thought it was just the way life worked. And so again, we ask this question, what are some of the ways that we've accepted as normal that break God's heart? Well, Solomon dies, civil war breaks out, Israel splits into a northern and a southern kingdom, and with just a couple of exceptions, the northern and southern kings lead this alternative community further and further away from God's vision for justice. So what does God do? God loves Israel. He wants Israel to come back to him, so he sends Israel prophets. And if we could go to the next slide, these prophets bring a twofold message to Israel. First, they criticize God's people for not living God's way. And Micah 3.8 says that the vocation of a prophet is to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. So they call Israel to repent, to turn to God with a whole heart. But secondly, the prophets offer a hopeful vision of an alternative future. Now, I I would bet that you might never have heard a sermon series on the prophets. At least if you've been under my teaching, you haven't, because I've never preached one. Uh, I don't think I ever preached one in in the church I was in before. So in almost 30 years, I've never preached a series on the prophets. I had no classes on the prophets. I was actually in seminary for seven years, two different seminaries, never took a class on the prophets. The prophets compose about a third of the whole Old Testament. Matter of fact, the rabbis uh, describe the Hebrew scriptures as the law and the prophets. So they're, they're not like a footnote. They're, they're like important. Why, are, why don't we preach on it? Because they're hard. <laughs> they're hard to understand. Well, actually, no, that's not it. <laughs> they're easy to understand. They're, and that message is so brutal that sometimes you don't know how to get through it. But one of the things that I think you forget when you read through the prophets is that almost all of them have this second message as well of hope. Uh, the second message of the prophet is a hopeful vision of an alternative future. This is the last verse of the book of Amos. And, and for a while I thought, well, maybe we'll do Amos. And then I thought, no. <laughs> Amos is really, really mad. Um, but at the end of the book, Amos says, after nine chapters and 15 verses of pretty brutal uh, uh, preaching, God says, I'll restore the fortunes of my people of Israel, and they will rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them and plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit, and I'll plant them on their land, and they'll never again be uprooted out of the land that I've given them, says the Lord our God. So as tonight, we're just kind of introducing this whole question of Uh, of the prophets by by asking the question, what is a prophet? And one of the things that we need to keep in mind is that they basically do two things. They criticize the present reality, they call for repentance, and they they envision a hopeful future. So that's what a prophet does. They critique and they give hope. And they, almost all of them, do both. Now, the prophets are also not just for the ancient Israelites. They're in God's Holy Scripture. What does 2 Timothy 3 say about God's Holy Scripture? All Scripture is inspired, profitable for rebuke, rebuke, correction, reproof, teaching, and righteousness. 
You look at church history, and God has time and time again used the Hebrew prophets to awaken his people from slumber. Now, a good teacher at this point uh, has learning objectives, and you actually are trained to write down, this is what I hope we learn in this series, these are the behaviors that I hope we change. And I've, I've been working on this series since July, and I don't know where we're going. I've got a rough outline, um, but I have a sense that as you pray about these things, as you read the prophets, as you talk about them, that God is going to speak to us as a community, and we're going to discern what he's trying to say to us in our time and place. So I'm not sure where we're going, uh, but I'm confident he'll share with us along the way. So tonight, I just wanted to start with what is a prophet? There are three Hebrew words for prophet. The first one, roah, means seer. And a seer is someone who is able to see what God is up to in the world, often in a way that others can't. Amos 3.7, Surely the Lord does nothing without revealing his secret to his servant, the prophets. Jeremiah 23.8, The prophets stand in the counsel of the Lord and deliver his message. So the first thing that a prophet is, is someone who sees what God is up to or what's breaking God's heart. Uh, They have the ability to kind of uh, maybe see behind the scenes and and understand what maybe the rest of us don't see. And and I am not a prophet. Uh, I work for a (laughs) nonprofit. Just a little humor in there to kind of, you know, getting kind of heavy in here. Okay. All right. The second word, Jose, Jose means visionary. Prophets see visions. Uh, the book of Amos is a, is a vision. The book of Ezekiel is a collection of visions. Um, prophets have supernatural experiences where God reveals what he's doing through uh, pictures. The third word, Nabi, means called one. And uh, almost all the prophets have a calling story. And... Almost all the time, the prophet doesn't want to go, (laughs) Uh, which we'll come back to that in a moment. Most most people aren't just kind of, hey, pick me, pick me. That's not how the prophets get called. Now, there are four different groups of prophets in the Old Testament, and I think we have a slide on that. Um, The first one you find in the earliest books And you find that there are these schools of prophets that wander around the countryside and prophesy and minister to God's people. Uh, One of the first references in 1 Samuel 10, Samuel tells Saul, As you come to the city, you'll meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with a harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. And the Spirit of God rushed upon them, and he prophesied among them. Now, we don't have any written records from this first group. Uh, We read about them in 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings. They're very important. The author of Kings believes they're the the hope of reforming Israel. Elijah, Nathan, and Elisha are examples of these prophets. Now, the second group prophesied during the Assyrian invasion in the 8th century B.C., and that was when mighty Assyria came in, attacked the northern tribe, and destroyed it. 
And those are the prophets that write during that period, Jonah, Amos, Hosea, Micah, and Isaiah. The third group of prophets ministers to Israel in the 6th century B.C. when Babylon attacks, and their names are Zephaniah, Habakkuk, Jeremiah, Nahum, Ezekiel, and Obadiah. Then the last group of prophets speak when Israel is either in exile or has come home, uh, Daniel, Haggai, Zechariah, Joel, and Malachi. Now, the Bible also speaks about a fifth group of prophets, and I just wanted to take a moment on this. This is not really what the series is about, but I felt like I wanted to mention it here. The prophet Joel predicts that a spirit of prophecy will be poured out on the church. And you see prophets active throughout the book of Acts. Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, says prophets play a foundational role in the church. In the book of 1 Corinthians, he gives instruction on how the gift is to function. He tells Thessalonians not to despise the gift of prophecy. So if you're asking, are, are these people still around? I believe the New Testament's fairly clear that they are. There's a big difference, of course, is that now we're in the New Covenant. And so their ministry is tempered by, by more, much more grace. But they're still around. And, and tonight is not the night to, to look at what that ministry looks like in our body. But I would say this. You might just go back at the three Hebrew words for a prophet and see if they describe your experience with God. Uh, a prophet is a seer. Uh, do you see uh, things that other people don't see? A prophet is a visionary. Do you sometimes have visions, supernaturally given pictures that, like dreams, reveal where God is at work? A prophet is called. Do you sense God calling you to speak for him? Now, I don't know how this gift is functioning around the world today. Uh, in our little corner of the vineyard, here's what I see. I see some prophets speaking powerfully into people's lives to help them grow. I see some prophets helping church leaders discern God's future. And I see some prophets challenging us to see injustice in the world. And that's the way I see it functioning in our body currently. Now, just a couple of other observations about prophets. Um, prophets are often lonely. And they're lonely because they are often misunderstood. Jeremiah says, I'm ridiculed all day long. Everyone mocks me. Whenever I speak, I cry out proclaiming violence and destruction so the word of the Lord has brought me insult and reproach all the day long. So it's, it's a pretty lonely calling to, to have this. Uh, an article uh, put it like this. The prophet's load is lonely, road is lonely not because she escapes the hubbub of everyday life in order to retreat and draw near to God. No, the prophet's road is lonely because she's called to the most troubled corners of the world, places uh, which existence we would rather deny or ignore. The prophet's road is lonely because she must speak boldly to an upside-down world that doesn't realize it's upside-down. Prophets also feel deeply, and, and this, this is a hard part of this, Jeremiah chapter 8. Since my people are crushed, I am crushed. I mourn and horror grips me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is there no healing for the wound of my people? Oh, that my head were a spring of water and my eyes a fountain of tears. I'd weep day and night for the slain of my people. This is one of the hard things about this gift, if you have it, is you just 
carry pain over injustice, over sin that other people don't seem to carry. And, it, and sometimes you, you wish you could just have a beer and chill out, but you can't. And you wonder, people, don't you see what I see? You know, how can you be so oblivious to what's going on? And, and, uh, but that's part of the calling is you just carry it. Um, prophets uh, struggle with God's call. We already mentioned that. When, when the Lord calls Jeremiah, he says, Ah, Lord God, behold, I don't know how to speak. I'm only a youth. When God calls Isaiah, he says, Woe's me, I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean rips. In the Fellowship of the Ring, Frodo protests to Gandalf, and he, Frodo says, I'm not made for perilous quests. You ever feel that way? When God's called you to do something? I wish I'd never seen the ring. Why did it come to me? Why was I chosen? And Gandalf says, such questions cannot be answered. You may be sure that it was not for any merit that others do not possess, not for power or wisdom at any rate, but you've been chosen, and you must therefore use such strength and heart and wits as you have. (laughs) Prophets are also more like artists or poets than theologians. Uh, Walter Brueggemann, an Old Testament scholar, he says, a prophet is a poet, artistically playful, imaginal, unaccredited, with no prophetic training, without social authority, emotionally bold, naming things the way they are, eruptive, full of elusive metaphors and images, alarming, casting issues of fidelity and infidelity in your face, beyond control, abrasive, imagining God's incredible freedom, opening, opening, opening. They speak in mystery and poetry because they have no other way to say it. Most prophets come from the margins. That's important, too. Uh, there are a few exceptions, but by and large, prophets are uncredentialed. They're, they haven't been to school. They don't have degrees. Uh, they're kind of outsiders that come in to the people in power, and generally the people in power don't like that. Prophets can be messy and disruptive in the way they communicate. Um, Prophets are not always the easiest people to be around because sometimes God leads them to to communicate in unorthodox ways. For example, Ezekiel lay on his side, tied up with ropes for many days. I think he just lay out in the street and people walked over him. Uh, God told him to cook his food over human excrement as a protest. Uh, God commanded Jeremiah to wear an ox yoke and walk around the streets of Jerusalem. Uh, Isaiah walked naked in the street to demonstrate the shame of Israel. All this to say that there is a wildness to the prophet and his or her message, and we don't like this much. And and I I just want to make a point here, and I want to be careful with it, because I I think Christians really misunderstand this aspect of of the the prophet. Uh, Maybe it's a Black Lives Matter protest, and people go out on the street and stop traffic. Or maybe, uh, maybe you're protesting against abortion and somebody puts up pictures of, of fetuses on a college campus. And, and, and Christians will all often say, that's not what Christians should do. We, we, never, should, we never should disrupt things like that. You know, we, we, that's not what Christians are. Now, whether you agree with the positions or not, that's not what I'm talking about. But brothers and sisters, that is what prophets do. They stop traffic. They offend you. They shock you. Uh, that's what they do. So let's kind of back away from, from this idea that 
anybody that kind of does anything that kind of shocks us a little bit is couldn't be of God because you'd have to get rid of all the prophets. And sometimes this kind of discourse is necessary to break a culture out of its complacency and its incestuous familiarity with sin. One scholar puts it like this, the prophets were preaching, writing poetry in a world that favored a socioeconomic order that benefited the urban elite in Jerusalem at the expense of the rural peasant. They lived in a culture of denial and had to have rhetorical means so that their listeners could get in touch with what was really going on in their lives. They knew that a city and a dynasty and a temple and an economy and an urban infrastructure that are out of sync with God simply could not be sustained. So that's why they're weird. Now, we don't know where this is all going, but we do have this idea, and this may help us determine where where we're going. In AD 70, the Romans invaded uh, Jerusalem and and, uh, destroyed the temple. And they destroyed all of it except for the Western Wall. And if you go there today... The western wall is still there, and the stones that the soldiers pushed over are still where uh, they rested 2,000 years ago. And over the years, the western wall has become a very sacred site, and pilgrims from all over the world have come to pray. And uh, I got to do that once, and it's a very intense and lovely experience. Uh, There's Jews there, there's Christians there, there's Muslims there, and uh, the prayers are very, very passionate. And people uh, take written prayers and they, they roll them up. And actually the wall looks somewhat, somewhat like this. Um, and they write the prayer on it. And then they just kind of stick it into a crack somewhere. And, and they leave it there. And if you go to the wall tonight, there'll be dozens and hundreds of these prayers from all over the world stuck into the wailing wall. So here's what I want you to do during this series. We're going to do this eight weeks up to lament. Up to lament. Up to Lent. Yeah, same thing. (laughs) I want you to, as the Spirit moves you, to write prayers and stick them into the wall. It might be a, a prayer for an injustice. It might be a lament over an injustice. It might be repentance over a sin that you feel that you're committing. Uh, it, it, could, it could be a number of different things. Uh, nobody will look at it. There's pins here and there. You can do it after service. You can stand up in the middle and do it in the middle of service, whenever, whenever you want to do it. But I want you to uh, put your prayers in the wailing wall, and then that will lead us into Lent. Okay? Well, let's pray. <laughs> 